Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamo, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, broadcasting to you from my home office in the northeast corner of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, we got a lot to talk about today as the quarantine continues, but before we get into all of the assorted criminal justice fuckery, a few notes. One, we are approaching the third birthday of the podcast. We started this back on May 1st of 2017. Uh, the past year has been mostly a wash because, of course, we went on fairly uh, long hiatuses that are only just now beginning to end. Uh, but we are celebrating but because for three of the four weeks of April, uh, we've turned out a podcast. So we are slowly getting back to what I hope will be our regular routine. As part of that, if you would like to celebrate our upcoming podcast birthday, do me a favor and tell some of your friends to listen to us if you don't mind. I would truly appreciate it. I know Mike would as well. Uh, also, we have a correction from the prior episode. I had mentioned the town of Alton, Illinois and Wood River, Illinois, and the fact that they were both side by side, but I also said they were suburbs of Chicago. I apparently do not know my Illinois geography. Uh, I was on the completely wrong end of the state. They're actually suburbs of St. Louis, Missouri. And I don't know why the hell I said Chicago, because I definitely looked up a map of the two to see that they were side by side. Uh, but I have to apologize for that mistake. And thank you to at LonePatFan1 for the correction. I appreciate it. Uh, so let's go ahead and get into the news. Oh, sorry, I forget. And this is a sign that we are still trying to get used to our broadcast schedule. Uh, if you have not already done so. Please make sure to join the conversation online. You can follow us on Twitter at Fiskamall, as at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can leave a written comment on our website, Fiskamall.com, that is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become one of our financial supporters, the folks that help keep the website running, our media host paid, and the paychecks going to Mike the Sound Guy so he can keep working on these uh, audio thingies, please do that at patreon.com slash fisk. That is patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. No real politics to talk about. We are, of course, still in quarantine mode uh, as far as the coronavirus goes. By the time you hear this, we will likely have surpassed 1 million active cases. The last time I checked, we were at 987,000, 55,000 Americans dead, which is an astonishing number of dead people for a two-month time span. Um, and it's terrible. And of course, now we are dealing with a combination of uh, supposed libertarians or libertarian-ish people, mostly Trumpists, who want to reopen the economy prematurely and have everyone go back like nothing is wrong. And then, of course, you have the government trying to abuse its authority because it feels like it can, which you will see in some of the stories we have going on here. Uh, so we are just in the worst of both possible worlds. And we will see what happens. And of course, your president is still a moron. I would be remiss if I went through a podcast without pointing out that Donald Trump is congenitally unfit to be president. So that is it for the politics. In criminal justice fuckery, we will start out with the court news. The United States Supreme Court issued its ruling in a case involving non-unanimous juries. The case was called Ramos versus Louisiana. And if you get bored... I would encourage you to read it because the issue they were fighting about ended up 
being not what they were actually fighting about, if that makes sense. I think Mark Joseph Stern from Slate called it shadow boxing, and it really is. You can see undercurrents fighting over abortion and Roe v. Wade, fighting about topics of race and white fragility, uh, the issue of precedent, which actually matters. There's a whole bunch of stuff in that opinion, a little bit for everybody. So we're actually, you know, normally we just tell you what happened and give you the opinion. We're going to give you the opinion in the show notes, but then we've also got the news story about the uh, the happening. It's the link to SCOTUS blog, which has a link to stuff on it. An analysis from uh, the Vola Conspiracy folks, Reason Magazine, breaking down the opinion section by section and finding out which justices voted for what, because it was a super fractured opinion. But then in particular, I'm going to include the link and read you some snippets from a guy named Jonathan Blanks, who is at Blanks Slate on Twitter. And he has an excellent analysis of the opinion, its effect, and kind of why things broke down the way they did. Uh, So from his column, he says, quote, On Monday morning, a splintered U.S. Supreme Court ruled that non-unanimous guilty verdicts in criminal trials violate the Sixth Amendment. And the right against that violation was incorporated by the Fourteenth Amendment. That means it was being held as applying to the states as well. Uh, In doing so, the court overturned Apodaca v. Oregon, a 1972 case, which protected non-unanimous juries in the last two states where they were tolerated, Oregon and Louisiana. The upshot of the case is straightforward. The Sixth Amendment's requirement of a unanimous jury to obtain a criminal conviction is now law throughout every jurisdiction in the United States. That, however, is about all that everyone can agree upon. The ruling in Ramos v. Louisiana contained five separate opinions. It featured non-traditional and partial splits among the justices and totaled 87 pages, including the syllabus. Despite the several opinions, only three justices voted to uphold the conviction and allow Apodaca to stand. Yet the mutual contempt for the arguments between the majority opinion, written by Justice Neil Gorsuch, and the dissent, authored by Justice Samuel Alito, was unmistakable and will thus likely overshadow the less strident arguments in the three concurring opinions, written by Justices Brett Kavanaugh, Sonia Sotomayor, and Clarence Thomas. The case featured several legal issues, incorporation, the meaning of the Sixth Amendment right to trial by jury, and stare decisis, that is the judicial principle that you should keep precedent, adhere to it, so there's some predictability in the law. Uh, And the most contentious recurring social issue that underlies so much of U.S. history and policy, race. Uh, So that's the teaser from Mr. Blanks' column. I'm going to give you links to all that stuff in the show notes. Go read the whole opinion because it is just super fascinating to me. Uh, As far as Justice Thomas's concurrence goes, it's pretty normal. He has this thing where he routinely argues that a given result that the court has reached should in fact have been reached by relying on the Privileges and Immunities Clause as opposed to the other clauses in the 14th Amendment. And I, I got to tell you, a lot of people argue that Thomas is only doing that because he wants to penalize immigrants, non-citizens, that sort of thing. I tend to give him a little bit of the benefit of the doubt because he's been on this for so long. And I agree with his core point that the Privileges and Immunities Clauses uh, have been basically read out of existence by the court You know, in the slaughterhouse cases many, 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 many years ago, we've covered them in a prior podcast. Uh, Basically, there are no privileges and immunities of citizenship. And the question is, if that clause is in the Constitution, what does it mean? It's got to mean something. But because of judicial interpretation, we don't actually have any. So I, I tend to agree with Thomas's point. 
as far as his concurrence goes. He was the only one who agreed with his particular interpretation of it, which I suspect will be the case for a long while. Uh, Kavanaugh wrote a very squishy concurrence, basically trying to lay out the argument ahead of time of when he votes to overturn Roe v. Wade, what his explanation is going to be. And then Justice Sotomayor had a very good concurrence, basically pointing out that, among other things, you know, the Louisiana provision on non-unanimous juries was explicitly done as a racist act after Reconstruction to stop newly enfranchised black jurors who were now going to be allowed to serve on juries from actually making a difference. Because if you had two or three on a jury, the expectation was they would automatically vote to acquit. Well, if you allow a non-unanimous jury where you only need nine or ten people to convict, it doesn't matter. You allow the black jurors, you allow them to vote, but their vote doesn't actually make a difference in that scenario. Uh, so it's all fascinating stuff. Of course, Justice Alito is very upset that anyone would bring up race because he is the white supremacist judge. I mean, if you look at his jurisprudence, anything involving race, he always takes white folks' side for everything, you know, whether it's Richie V. Stefano or a whole bunch of other decisions. Alito is the white guy. Uh, then you have Justice Roberts, who joined Alito's dissent. And Roberts, you know, doesn't always take the white folks' side. He just pretends race doesn't exist. And then you have Justice Kagan, who is normally considered a liberal, also joined the dissent because she is one of the big defenders of precedent. This notion that even bad precedent, even wrongly decided precedent, even gibberish precedent, which the Apodaca case was, uh, should nonetheless be upheld. So you have this very bizarre uh, alignment of justices. I got to say, Justice Gorsuch, you know, I've said it in many podcasts. I like him. I like his jurisprudence. The way he writes these opinions, the points he makes, you know, he is better than Scalia, in my opinion. He's miles better than Merrick Garland, in my opinion. He's better than Kavanaugh and Alito both. Uh, he does have a few outliers that are bad, from my view, but for the most part, I think he gets it right. And this is another one of those opinions where I tend to agree with him almost entirely. Uh, so we'll give you all that stuff in the show notes. Make sure to read it yourself, even if you are not a lawyer, because it's just super fascinating seeing how Supreme Court politics pan out in what is really a fairly simple issue. I mean, the notion of allowing non-unanimous juries should have always been repugnant to the Constitution. Uh, and the fact it took us this long to get there, you know, better late than never. But check all that stuff out. Okay. Uh, don't have any research stuff worth noting. Uh, don't have any federal-specific stuff worth noting. In the state-by-state -state criminal justice fuckery, we will start this week down in Florida, where when inmates started getting sick of the coronavirus, the bureaucrats and politicians decided they were going to try and keep it quiet. So from that story in the Miami Herald, it says, quote, cases of COVID-19 in Florida prisons may be metastasizing, and so are the fears of staffers, lawmakers, and family members of inmates who wonder what is being done to keep inmates and employees safe as the highly contagious virus spreads. At least four inmates have died, nearly one in three inmate tests are coming back positive, and there's little information on exactly who is being tested and when. The first inmate deaths weren't acknowledged by the Florida Department of Corrections for six days, and only after a news organization had revealed them. It's been over a month since the first COVID-19 cases in Florida started to pop up, but just one day since the FDC started to publicly list how many inmates and employees have been tested for the disease. For weeks, the FDC, from its communications staff to Secretary Mark Inch, had ignored questions from reporters about how many inmates were being tested, how many tests were coming back positive, how many were coming back negative, and how many were still pending. 
Blackwater River Correctional Facility, a state prison near Pensacola run by a private contractor, the GEO Group, has been the hardest hit by the virus. Blackwater has nine staff members and 34 inmates who have tested positive, according to the web. Uh, Blackwater inmates Jeffrey Sand, 69, and William Wilson, 84, died earlier this month. Their deaths were just made public on Wednesday when a reporter for the News Service of Florida contacted the medical examiner in Santa Rosa County as opposed to the prison. On Thursday evening, the medical examiner's office said it had received two other inmates who had died of COVID-19. Their names and ages, Rafael Rosario, 65, and Jesse Bannerman, 66. When the News Service of Florida posted its story, the Department of Corrections acknowledged the first two deaths on its website, although the first death had occurred nearly a week earlier. Thursday, it acknowledged a third, although the medical examiner in the county has already tallied four. Uh, there's a lot more to this particular story laying out how the reporters pieced together how many people had already died, basically using different aspects of the bureaucracy to ferret out information. I really don't understand the rationale of trying to keep this stuff quiet. Everyone knows it exists. You know, you might as well just go ahead and be honest and upfront with it. Earn some kudos for transparency, and then people would like you more, you know? Uh, so also in Miami, while we're down there, so that story was statewide, but we have another Miami Herald piece where we have the first rule of Fisk making another appearance. And the first rule, for those who are not familiar, is that police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And that also includes even in a pandemic. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, The soundless video shows a man wearing a protective mask picking up bags and boxes outside a white van when a Miami police officer pulls up. The officer steps out of a squad car. Words are exchanged. Then the officer handcuffs and detains the man, Dr. Armin Henderson who was recently featured in a Miami Herald article about volunteers who provide free coronavirus testing for homeless people in downtown Miami. Dr. Henderson was eventually removed from the handcuffs after his wife, Layla Hussein, emerged from the couple's home and showed identification to the officer. Dr. Henderson was not arrested, but after video of the encounter was shared widely online, Chief Jorge Kalina of the Miami Police Department ordered an internal investigation into the matter. In a video statement on Saturday, I, this is fascinating, the notion that police are doing video statements, it's, it's interesting to me. Uh, Chief Kalina said his department, subquote, does not condone or accept profiling of any kind. According to Chief Kalina, the city had been receiving, subquote, a litany of complaints pertaining to illegal dumping of trash on the streets from residents in Flagami, a boot-shaped neighborhood by the Miami International Airport. Dr. Henderson said in an interview that he was loading his van with tents to take to homeless people in downtown Miami around 11.30 a.m. on Friday when the officer approached him. Subquote, he asked me if I lived there and if I was littering, Dr. Henderson recalled on Tuesday. And I said, no, this is where the city picks up our bulky trash every week, and then I just left it at that. He thought the conversation was over and turned around. But when Dr. Henderson turned around to resume his cleanup, the officer handcuffed him. Subquote, I did not know I was under arrest. He called for his wife, who was inside the house with her five-year-old daughter and 11-month-old son. After his wife presented identification, Dr. Henderson said the officer released him. Dr. Henderson said he was concerned that the officer approached him without wearing a protective mask. He said he wanted people to know that it was wrong, subquote, that it was racial profiling, that the police are still acting like it's business as usual, even though it's a pandemic. You know, people who support mass incarceration are a death cult. You know, I hate the death cult phrase, but it's really what it's got to be. You have complaints of illegal littering. You go out with no protective gear, planning to arrest a black guy for illegal littering. And you have no clue if he's infected. It also turns out he's a fucking doctor. 
you know, it's just ludicrous. The entire prosecutorial apparatus in this country is ludicrous. Uh, so those are the two stories in Florida. In Louisiana, the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck of criminal justice. We actually have some court news at the circuit level. Normally, we put the Circuit Court of Appeals decisions up in the uh, court news at the beginning. But because the facts of this are so Louisiana-specific, it's not really going to apply anywhere else. So we put it in the Louisiana stuff. Uh, because we actually talked about this case way back in episode 33, back in 2017, about the use of fake subpoenas. And it turns out someone sued the district attorney's office for it. And at least some of those claims are going to be allowed to proceed. So from the news story, it says, quote, Federal appeals court judges said Tuesday that a lawsuit against Orleans Parish District Attorney Leon Canizero's office over its use of fake subpoenas can proceed, rejecting prosecutors' claims that they are immune from suit. The unanimous decision came as no surprise after a panel of three judges on the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals gave Canizero's legal team a rocky reception at an oral argument in February. Prosecutors said they should be shielded by the long-standing concept of prosecutorial immunity, which holds that they are protected for actions they take ahead of trial. But the federal judges were scathing about the use of the bogus subpoenas, which didn't have a state judge's approval, but still threatened jail time for crime victims and witnesses who declined to cooperate. One judge called them a lie. Judge Katerina Haynes, a George W. Bush appointee, didn't repeat some of the harsher criticisms in her opinion published on Tuesday. However, Haynes said that based on the facts alleged in the lawsuit, it appeared that the prosecutors were acting more like police investigating a case than lawyers preparing for trial when they issued the fake subpoenas, and thus they were not immune from legal challenge. Now, I'm going to note, this opinion really only dealt with the prosecutorial immunity claim, which is an absolute bar to suit. Um, it only has some very minor limits. The lower court still gave qualified immunity on all but two of the claims that were alleged, and they can still get qualified immunity on the two claims that are remaining. Uh, so we should still abolish qualified immunity. But this particular decision just said that the claim of prosecutorial immunity was bogus, and it now goes back to the trial court to continue wherever they happen to have left off. Uh, in Washington, Louisiana, and just as an aside, I think it's super weird that there are cities than states that have the same names. So, I mean, there's a lot of them, but, you know, a lot of states have Washingtons in it, and I realize that's all in honor of our first president, who was a great guy, cool, kudos to him, but it's always bizarre to me when I say Washington in a show, because I could be referring to D.C., I could be referring to the state, or I could be referring to any random small podunk town, which happens to be the case here. In Washington, Louisiana, we have the first rule of Fisk again, Police will continue to do dumb shit, even when they are being recorded. And in this case, it is a sheriff's deputy choking the fuck out of a COVID-positive inmate who was asking for medical treatment. You can't make this shit up. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, An inmate at a Louisiana prison was choked by a sheriff's deputy and appeared to lose consciousness later in the struggle, according to video footage obtained by BuzzFeed News. The inmate says it was retaliation for repeatedly requesting medical assistance for symptoms commonly associated with the novel coronavirus. Bradford Skinner, an inmate in the East Baton Rouge Parish Prison, said he began asking for medical care on April 3rd for coughing and chest pain, according to an account relayed to BuzzFeed through his lawyers. He said an official sent him away with ingredients to make tea 
and dismissed him when he asked for care again the next day. Skinner said when he tried to ask a different official for help, the first official threatened him with a riot incitement charge and called in additional deputies. He said that was the last thing he remembered before being choked and restrained by a sheriff's deputy and other prison facility employees. BuzzFeed News obtained a one-minute video that shows parts of the April 4 incident in which an officer is indeed seen choking Skinner. The source of the video requested anonymity due to the sensitive nature of the situation. The East Baton Rouge Sheriff's Office, which runs the prison, confirmed the video is authentic. In the video, a sheriff's deputy is seen holding Skinner by the neck before pushing his body down on a railing as two other prison employees hold him and place leg shackles on him. The deputies then hold Skinner by the back of his neck. Skinner's arms fall limp while he is held over the railing and he appears to be wearing handcuffs or some other wrist restraint. When Skinner is pulled back up, he slumps onto the ground as other inmates gather around. There's a lot more to the story, a lot more to the video. Of course, it actually looks worse than it sounds uh, because that's how these things are. So that is Louisiana. Let's hop over to Michigan. In this case, you know, this is this is one of those stories where it's just, it's ridiculous. So in Lennox Township, Another prisoner is dead, and in this case, he was just a few weeks from being released. From that story, it says, quote, William Garrison was due to come home from prison in early May. After nearly 44 years incarcerated, he would be free from a life sentence handed to him as a juvenile. His sister, Yolanda Peterson, had prepared a room for him to stay in her Harper Woods home and planned for his parole agent to come see her place. She was brainstorming how, given the coronavirus pandemic, she might help her brother celebrate his 61st birthday at the end of May. Plans for the future fell apart on April 13th when Peterson got word that her brother had died unexpectedly in prison. Garrison's bunkmate found him gasping for air that evening in their two-man cell at Macomb Correctional Facility, according to Michigan Department of Corrections spokesman Chris Gouts. Staff performed CPR. Garrison was transported to a hospital where he was pronounced dead. A post-mortem test confirmed he was positive for COVID-19. Garrison is one of at least 17 state prisoners who have died of COVID-19 as of Friday. More than 520 prisoners have tested positive out of the 805 total prisoners tested. Now, there's multiple pieces here. One, consider that number, 520 out of 805. That is a tremendously high positive rate. And you're actually going to hit that repeated when we get over to Ohio. Uh, But just this stuff is just running fucking rampant in the prisons, and we're not doing enough to fix it. And in this case, you know, this is a guy who was sentenced for murder. When he was 16, he and some accomplices were convicted, and he was given a life sentence. They could have sent him to death, and they didn't. They gave him a life sentence without the possibility for parole. Then you had the Supreme Court case that says, you know, we can't really do that for juvenile offenders. So he was resentenced to 40 to 90 years and was eligible for parole if the parole board agreed. And the parole board said, yeah. You're not a threat. You've been in here for most of your life. You know, you're not violent or anything. You made this one fuck up 40-something years ago. And they said, you're allowed to get parole. Let's go ahead and have this little two-week window where we handle all the processing for you to be released. And then he just fucking died. He got the death penalty anyway, even though the original jury in 1976 chose not to give that to him. The parole board chose not to give that to him, but he is now dead. Rest in peace, William Garrison. Forgive the dog in the background, by the way. He likes to bark at every single fucking thing that happens to be outside, whether it's squirrels or deer or uh, sewer cats. we got a few cats that like to hang out in the storm drain. The delivery guy, the landscape folks, 
you know, people doing landscaping down the street. He will still bark at those. It drives me fucking bonkers, but I still love him. Uh, continuing in the state-by-state state criminal justice fuckery, let's go over to New Jersey in Trenton. And here, you know, when I said at the top of the podcast that we were in the, the worst of all worlds, the dumbest of all possible timelines, when we're dealing with both, you know, pseudo-libertarians who want to infect you with their pestilence and governments that want to seize all the powers because it's an emergency, this is one of those examples. Uh, basically, the prisons were trying to prevent inmates from talking to the media if they happen to be released to avoid dying from the fucking coronavirus. Uh, so from that story, it says, quote, as New Jersey prepares to temporarily release some state prison inmates to stem a spike in coronavirus deaths behind bars, corrections officials threatened to throw anyone who talked to the media back in their cells, NJ Advanced Media has learned. The gag order was among more than two dozen conditions prisoners had to agree to in order to get temporary medical leave under an executive order signed by Governor Phil Murphy this month, which sought to reduce prison populations by moving sick, elderly, and other prisoners to home confinement. Violating any term can land you back in prison, where at least 16 inmates have already died, as well as trigger subquote, further disciplinary action, according to the original contract. A draft obtained by NJ Advanced Media directed prisoners not to subquote, engage in any public activities, meetings, discussions, or demonstrations, or give interviews or opinions to the press, radio, or television media. Uh, the condition raised concerns among free speech advocates, especially at a time when the state's prison system faces intense scrutiny over limited testing, a rise in deaths in custody, and complaints from inmates and officers that New Jersey isn't doing enough to quell the spread of COVID-19. Now, a few things here. Uh, being kept in a prison where you're most likely to die from a communicable disease violates the Eighth Amendment. This is why you're seeing a lot of actions by defense attorneys trying to have inmates released temporarily based on Eighth Amendment claims. It's why you're seeing a lot of politicians, DAs, work to do that ahead of time in collaboration with public defenders because they know it violates the Eighth Amendment. So while you're physically in a jail or prison, you can be banned from talking to the press because the jailers typically have pretty wide latitude to control access to the facility. So if they're concerned about inmate safety, officer safety, a whole bunch of other bullshit rationales, the courts have said, okay, yes, you can stop inmates from topping, talking to the media. But once you're out, once you're in your home, even if you're on home confinement, you can't do that. It violates the First Amendment. It becomes a prior restraint on speech. Uh, so this was bullshit. Apparently, the ACLU threatened to sue and they agreed to take it out. But these types of power grabs by the government, one, are just stupid and they really should know better. Um, but it's absurd. You're seeing so much effort to massage perception that they willingly do things that violate the law, which makes perception worse. Like we're, we're just we're governed by fucking morons everywhere. Uh, so that's in New Jersey over in Ohio in Marin, Marion, forgive me, Marion, Ohio. Uh, have another case of a prison where the virus is just going batshit insane. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, a state prison has become a hot spot of the COVID-19 outbreak in Ohio with at least 1,828 confirmed cases among inmates, accounting for the majority of cases in Marion County, which leads Ohio in the reported infections. Ohio officials say an aggressive testing program is responsible for the large number. The large cluster of cases was found through mass testing of everyone at the Marion Correctional Institute. 109 staff members were also positive. No COVID-19 deaths 
have yet been reported at the prison. Subquote, because we are testing everyone, including those who are not showing symptoms, we are getting positive test results on individuals who otherwise would have never been tested because they were asymptomatic, the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction says. There are currently 2,400 coronavirus cases among inmates in Ohio state prisons, along with 244 staff members. The numbers could rise this week. A prison in Pickaway County began mass testing on Sunday, with Ohio reporting some 12,919 coronavirus cases as of Monday. The prison system now accounts for more than 20% of the state's cases. Now, I got to say, the mass testing, stellar idea. Kudos to Ohio for doing it. Their governor has done a good job dealing with this particular crisis. Um, and, you know, it, it's what is supposed to be done. It's what I would expect to do if we get to a point where the economy is finally reopening and we can go back to work and whatnot. But I'm left with this core question. You know, you have 2,400 cases among inmates. 1,800 of them are just from this one prison. If it's that bad on Ohio, just in that one prison, imagine how bad it is everywhere else where we're not even doing the testing yet. Holy shit. Uh, so that's in Ohio. In Oregon, in Portland, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh because this guy has brain damage, but Jesus, the, this is one of those cases of the police eating their own. Uh, so from that story, it says, quote, three police recruits have now resigned in the wake of internal affairs investigations into their roles in the serious injury of a fellow student during, and I'm putting in air quotes here, roughhousing in a dorm at the state's basic training academy. Oregon State Police rookie officers Austin Doherty and Dylan Hansen resigned on Thursday. Doherty is the stepson of Deschutes County Sheriff L. Shane Nelson and son of Bend Police Officer Lisa A. Nelson. Deschutes County Sheriff's Deputy Joseph R. DeLance resigned on April 16th. The three all quit their jobs as the internal investigations were still proceeding, according to their respective agencies. They had been hired by those agencies and were sent to the state's police academy to complete basic training. A separate criminal investigation by Salem Police raised alarms about each recruit's candor and credibility surrounding what led to the hospitalization of Portland police recruit Dustin Matlock on October 17th. He was injured in a dorm at the training complex run by the State Department of Public Safety Standards and Training. Matlock suffered a brain bleed, a fractured vertebra, an orbital fracture, that's your eye, uh, and a broken wrist. Risk, wrist, broken wrist. I don't know why the fuck I can't talk right now. Uh, he was hospitalized for more than a week and never was able to complete basic training. Doctors said the injury suggested Matlock had been body slammed into the ground repeatedly. Matlock returned to the Portland Police Bureau on desk duty. The 28-year-old has been getting stronger and is waiting for the opportunity to complete the end of his basic police academy class so he can work as an officer. Uh, that is a terrible story. Glad those three are at least resigned. Hopefully they get prosecuted, but I won't hold my breath. Uh, over in Pennsylvania... Guys, I'm sorry. I don't know what's going on here. Mike, leave all this stuff in. Don't cut it out. Uh, in Pennsylvania, I'm going to have to like extra emphasize my words so I can pronounce them correctly. Pennsylvania. In Philadelphia, we have a judge who is blocking efforts to have inmates released early. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, the conduct of a controversial city judge has prompted the Defenders Association of Philadelphia to make a bold move. In an email sent late Tuesday and obtained by WHYY, Chief Defender Keir Bradford Gray informed the leadership of the 1st Judicial District that her office intends to, subquote, withdraw all cases listed before the 
Honorable Anne-Marie Coyle on Wednesday. Coyle is one of seven judges tapped to rule on dozens of emergency motions aimed at reducing the county jail population during the coronavirus pandemic. Coyle is the only judge who has denied the release of each case before her. Between April 7 and 9, the first three days the first judicial district conducted these emergency hearings, judges approved nearly 60% of the motions before them, releasing 235 inmates from county jails, according to data from the Defenders Association. So, quote, while the cases assigned to Judge Coyle are similar in every manner to those presented to all of the other judges who are participating in this program, Judge Coyle is the only judge who has failed to grant even a single motion for release and, further, is the only judge who has actually raised bail and made it harder for those persons to be released, wrote Bradford Gray. To date, a total of 62 people in Philadelphia jails have tested positive for COVID-19. On Tuesday, a woman in her 40s with underlying medical conditions became the county's first prisoner to die from the virus after being hospitalized. You know, the increasing the bail conditions really makes you a special kind of odious individual. Uh, So that is in Pennsylvania and Texas. We have three stories here. Two of them became the basis for today's episode title, One Law for Me, Another for Thee. Uh, You might recall from our last episode in Illinois, we had a situation where the mayor had issued a stay-at-home order, and then it turns out his wife was at a party. Well, here in Beaumont, uh, the mayor issued a stay-at-home order, but then decided to go get a manicure. From that story, it says, quote, A photo appearing to show Beaumont Mayor Becky Ames getting a manicure caused lots of chatter Tuesday after the image was shared on Instagram. The Texas Department of Licensing and Regulation received at least three formal complaints and multiple comments via Facebook before opening a case involving the nail bar in Beaumont, according to TDLR Public Information Officer Telemange. Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued an order closing all non-essential businesses, including nail salons, on April 2nd. Jefferson County had issued its order on March 21st. An investigator has been assigned to the case. Mange told 12 News on Thursday afternoon. Mayor Ames claimed earlier this week that she did go to the nail salon after talking to the owner about how to remove an old manicure set. She needed acetone, and the salon owner said she would leave some out for her. Instead, the owner had the solution set up in a bowl inside. The mayor says she was in and out in about 10 minutes, and the owner was the only person in the salon. The back door was open, and the salon was dark. So we have, you know, instead of speakeasies, we have whatever the uh, nail salon equivalent of a speakeasy is over in Texas. In Williamson County, uh, we have a judge doing the same thing. From that story, it says, quote, Williamson County Judge Bill Gravel is under fire after photographs emerged this week showing him and his wife attending his grandson's birthday party and using county resources in the process in the wake of having ordered residents to stay home amid the coronavirus outbreak. On Tuesday, a local government watchdog using the moniker Buddy Falcon posted surreptitiously taken photographs provided to Patch, showing the judge wearing official firefighter gear borrowed from the Jarrell Fire Department to wear at the kid's birthday party. The photo show Gravel donned in a full fireman's attire, complete with oxygen tank and a full-face protective mask. The social outing is in violation of a Williamson County stay-at-home order that Gravel personally signed in late March that have since been extended to April 30th, compelling residents to stay indoors amid the spread of COVID-19. 
2018. To further compel residents' adherence to the order, putative measures aimed at violators were also attached, a $1,000 fine or up to six months in jail. Such physical distancing guidelines are meant to blunt the spread of the respiratory illness. Now, here's the thing. I have no problem at all with a grandparent going to a grandkid's birthday party, even in the middle of the pandemic. If you want to do that, it is your family. More power to you. Don't do it when you are the one issuing the orders blocking the rest of us from going to our grandkids' birthday parties. And definitely don't take fire department equipment so that your little uh, you know, uh, pestilence vector family can breathe on before it goes back to the fire department. Uh, so those two stories, both out of Texas, joining the third story in Ohio about how the people governing us like us to follow rules that they themselves don't follow. Uh, and then in Woodville in Tyler County, we have another instance of uh, this overreach by police. You're going to see two of these stories uh, coming up to go with the prior one in New Jersey. From that story, it says, quote, Michael Lane Brandon knew his Facebook post would cause a stir. What he didn't realize was that he'd be arrested, lose his job, and face a trial that could see him behind bars. It was an otherwise dull afternoon in March, and the debate about how to cope with the potential outbreak of COVID-19 was all over his timeline. So he decided to, in his words, do a social experiment. Mr. Brandon posted that he had tested positive for coronavirus, and then he added that doctors had told him the virus was now airborne. That would mean it had suddenly become far easier to catch it than by simply being too close to an infected individual who coughs or sneezes in your general direction. But he made it all up. Soon, the Tyler County Sheriff's Office heard what was going on. Police contacted Mr. Brandon and told him to amend his post, which he did. But the rumor had snowballed on social media, and so the next Facebook post was perhaps inevitable. It came from the police themselves. The county sheriff told Facebook followers that the 23-year-old was now facing the criminal allegation of false alarm. Mr. Brandon was accused of creating a baseless report of an emergency, which in turn had triggered a response from law enforcement and medical officials. Now, here's the thing. This prosecution is patently unconstitutional and hopefully it will end up being dismissed uh, because this is one of those stupid but legal things. You know, when you're dealing with speech, there are a few categories of speech that are not protected and they're widely recognized and they're distinct. So you have incitement, you have true threats, you have fighting words, you have defamation, you have obscenity, you have child porn. You know, those things are well-defined. Saying on Facebook that you have a virus and it's not true doesn't meet any of those categories. It is still protected speech. You cannot be criminally prosecuted for it. In order for it to be incitement, which would be the closest thing you could potentially get, it would have to be intended to cause and reasonably likely to cause imminent lawless action. Well, people contacting the police is not a lawless action. That's actually doing what we're supposed to do. The time lag from when he posted it to when it happens gets rid of the imminence. And when it says here he's doing a social experiment, it's pretty obvious he didn't intend for any of those things to happen anyway. So this is something where the police are trying to put on a show for the populace because we have a bunch of people who love seeing people prosecuted for no good reason. And ultimately, this is going to go nowhere because the fact of the matter is that it violates the Constitution and the First Amendment. Uh, so that is in Texas. In Virginia, in Richmond, we are still continuing with business as usual, with police making petty weed busts, exposing themselves to the coronavirus so they can say that they got some weed off the streets. I don't know. Uh, but this was actually a joint task force between the Richmond police 
and federal law enforcement because they got told someone somewhere had coke and heroin, which of course are more serious drugs, but not worth a massive fucking raid and a time, money, and potential exposure. From that story, it says, quote, on March 19th, more than 80 local, state, and federal agents stormed a public housing community in Richmond, Virginia, as the novel coronavirus began ravaging the United States. The raid, which put dozens of law enforcement members in contact with a highly vulnerable population, came barely a week after the World Health Organization called COVID-19 a pandemic and the Trump administration declared a national emergency. Despite the fact that the massive raid risked spreading coronavirus among the Richmond community, its jails and law enforcement, prosecutors were defiant. Subquote, lest there be any doubt, crime doesn't self-quarantine and our brave law enforcement partners will not allow the rule of law to disintegrate amidst this pandemic. Pandemic, said Z, Z, G, Zachary Terwilliger, however the hell you pronounce his name, Zach. I'm just going to call him Zach, U.S. Attorney Zach, uh, U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia. The March 19th raid resulted in the arrest of six people. In total, eight men were hit with a range of federal charges, including conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute a controlled substance and cocaine distribution. But according to previously unreported documents reviewed by The Appeal this week, this is this story is uh, just from a few days ago, even though the raid itself was from March. Uh, none of the men arrested are accused of dealing more than $320 worth of heroin in any single purchase. The massive resources put into the March 19th raid, which involved ICE, ATF, DEA, FBI, Richmond Police, Virginia State Police, and the Virginia Attorney General's Office stand in stark contrast to the resource-deprived, historically segregated public housing communities, Creighton Court, Mosby Court, and Whitcomb Court, that were targeted in the case. The confidential informants didn't buy any heroin at all in February, but they restarted their buys in March as the coronavirus infections began to spread widely. On March 9th, a confidential informant allegedly called Washington to buy heroin. The informant said he was, subquote, trying to get a ball. Washington simply replied, okay. Washington is one of the guys who's been prosecuted. The pair met the next day, and the informant allegedly bought one gram of heroin from Vaughn. Nine days later, the ATF conducted the gigantic March 19th raid in which the agency says it recovered unspecified amounts of marijuana, crack, cocaine, and heroin, as well as four guns and a total of $1,500 in cash. Strouder, Washington, and four others were later hit with federal drug distribution charges. Any of the men who lived in public housing could now also face eviction due to those charges. On April 8th, U.S. Attorney Zach filed a motion for an extension of time to indict the men because of a coronavirus-related order. I shouldn't laugh. Basically, they suspended all grand jury proceedings because of the virus. So you're doing this raid as it's bad enough that courts are being delayed, but not bad enough to continue doing petty drug busts. Uh, on April 10th, a federal magistrate judge granted the motion to extend time. As the individuals await indictment, however, both Washington and Strouder remain incarcerated in a regional jail in Virginia that has been releasing people over COVID-19 concerns. If convicted, the men will be sent to the coronavirus-plagued Federal Bureau of Prisons, which as of April 14th reported 446 incarcerated people and 248 staff members who all had COVID-19. Uh, the numbers are going to be higher than that because I guarantee you a lot of people aren't getting tested. In Wisconsin, this is the other story I'd mentioned to you where the uh, the police are just batshit fucking insane. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, a few days after Mia Cahoon returned to Wisconsin from a school band trip to Florida in the middle of March, she developed a dry cough 
a high fever, and breathing problems. Amiya, 16, was taken to the hospital twice before being sent home and told to stay inside, even though she tested negative for coronavirus. During her sickness, the Westfield Area High School sophomore posted on Instagram three times about what she still believed was a scary brush with COVID-19, hoping to alert others, including friends and family, to the danger. Doctors noted that negative results did not always mean someone was not infected. Subquote, I am still on breathing treatment, but I have beaten the coronavirus, Amia wrote in a third post on March 26th. Subquote, stay home and be safe. The next day, a police sergeant showed up at the Cahoon's door. According to a police report included in the lawsuit, Amia's post had made other parents at school, subquote, upset. Amia would have to take the post down or risk violating rules on disorderly conduct and be cited or arrested, according to the report. The health department did not respond to requests for comment on Monday or Tuesday. In a letter to parents on March 27th, the same day the deputy knocked on the family's door, Bob Meeker, or Meitscher, however you pronounce it, the administrator of the Westfield School District, acknowledged that, subquote, there was a rumor floating out there that one of our students contracted COVID-19 while on the band trip to Florida two weeks ago. Let me assure you there is no, both caps, truth to this, he wrote. Subquote, this was a foolish means to get attention and the source of the rumor has been addressed. He said the head of the health department was involved and, subquote, putting a stop to this nonsense. The school district did not respond to requests for comment on Monday or Tuesday. Let's note, this flagrantly violates the First Amendment. It is an abuse of the Constitution. The fact that a superintendent happened to send this out means he should probably be dismissed as well, because if he's the one responsible for teaching kids, holy shit, that's all I got to say. Uh, The family has filed a suit claiming that their constitutional rights were violated. More power to them. We will see what happens. Uh, Every now and again, We do cover stories in other countries. We go back to the United Kingdom once again in Lancashire, where we have the First Rule of Fisk International Edition. Uh, Again, the First Rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. And here, a police officer threatened to fabricate charges against a guy. He has now been uh, placed on leave. From that story, it says, quote, a police officer who was filmed threatening to, subquote, make something up in order to lock up a young man has been suspended after a public outcry. The man was reportedly pulled over in Accrington, Lancashire on Friday by police after purchasing a quad bike for a relative when he was accosted by an officer in order to surrender his car keys, prompting him to protest that he had done nothing wrong. He was then told at a close distance that police would fabricate evidence to justify detaining him. The footage, filmed by a friend, went viral on social media, and Lancashire police issued an apology, which admitted that threatening to make offenses up damaged public confidence, no shit, understatement of the fucking year, uh, and that the officer had behaved in an unacceptable fashion. It said the member of the public had received a personal apology and that the incident had been referred to the force's professional standards department for investigation. But following pressure, the officer has now been suspended from duty. The force said in a statement, subquote, we absolutely recognize the impact this footage has had on public confidence and following an initial review by our professional standards department, the officer involved has been suspended from duty. And we'll give you a link that has the uh, original video. It actually, if you can believe it, is even worse than it sounds, as is so often the case. Uh, So, folks, that is it for the criminal justice fuckery for the week of whatever the prior week is to April 26th. 
Um, that's it. Keep sending me your suggestions and tips and stuff. I, you know, I keep an eye on things on Twitter and just through normally reading the news, but I appreciate the direct messages and the tweets and so on that also link stories to me as well. I try to keep them involved and uh, added into the show. So as always, please do us a favor. If you like what you've heard, well, even if you don't like it, what you heard, if you like the podcast, uh, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you know, uh, what else? Where are we at? Tune in, all these other spots. Uh, leave us a written review if you can. Tell your friends about us. Tweet us and all that other stuff. And on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, thank you for listening. I hope all of you have a great week. Stay home, stay safe, wash your hands, and we will talk to you next Monday. Take care. <laughs>